uh, like I said, we're in the Beatitudes. <laughs> I'm looking at this guy. Uh, so, and I, to get us started, I brought this little, what do you call this? Uh, visual aid? Yeah. So, yeah, somebody said, it's a kite. Yeah, duh. Uh, so, oh no. I knew, well, there you go. So this is my kite, my kite. I've had this since I was six. You guys see it? Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. The coolest. Right, Seth? Um, and I brought this to illustrate something, but I want to ask you a question. Uh, what, what are the necessary components to make a kite fly? Like, what do you absolutely need for that kite to fly? If I were going to walk outside, you'd need string. So I've got a spool of string. Boom. What else? Wind. I need some sort of wind. Open space. I hadn't thought about that. Good idea. Trees, not <laughs> power lines, not such a good idea. Okay, open space. What else? What's that? Gravity? Wow, I didn't think about gravity either. <laughs> so that's gonna that those are gonna that's gonna throw my whole sermon off right there. <laughs> that's pretty profound, actually. We need to sit down and talk about that <laughs> over like beer. There's at least one more thing. It's the most basic. A person. You cannot fly a kite. I mean, the, so what I want to say is, let's just take three of those, not gravity. Though I, if I had a little more time to think about it, it feels like it could be a really good sermon point. So we'll take the three uh, that I thought of, which are the string, since I have the mic, the string, the wind, and the person. I challenge anybody without one of those three to try and fly a kite. You cannot do it. You, you have to have all three of those in order for this kite to take flight. Now, the reason, other than maybe a few laughs, and I love, I love my kite, so if you come to our uh, all-church camp out, you'll see me attempting to fly it again. Tried last summer, didn't work. Didn't have the wind. So the reason I brought this is because uh, this new series in the Beatitudes, in the kingdom of God, you know, eight weeks on ten scriptures. That's, I mean, that's cool, I think go that deep into such a small section of scripture, but there's a problem, a fundamental problem with it as we do, okay? So the Beatitudes are a little bit like we've read them. We've all heard them at some point in our lives, I think. Um, I think they're arguably some of Jesus' most powerful, certainly some of the most beautiful words he spoke, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed, you know, you just go on and on. They're so beautiful, and they're kind of like, I'd say, to push the metaphor, a kite for us, right? They're they have the ability to inspire us. You know, how many of you have just been to the beach on the coast and just watched those people, you know who they are, they have like 15 kites, you know, and you just watch them. You can, you can kind of be in awe for a while and lose yourself watching these kites fly. They can bring meaning to suffering, the Beatitudes can. Uh, they can be hope amidst some dark times, and we're in the midst of some very dark times right now. Uh, they can produce endurance and courage within us if we just dwell in them, right? Here's the problem. This kite has been rumpled in a garage in Denver, Colorado for the last 20 years. It has. My mom shipped it to me. They're moving, they moved to Spokane, back to Spokane where I grew up last week. So they just mailed it to me. It showed up. I was like, wow, my kite. Uh, and quite often, I'll just say this, these declarations that Jesus spoke are kind of like that. They're just kind of flattened in a book on a page beside your bed or on a bookshelf. They just sit there. 
and they're not living in our lives. They don't, they're not working in our lives. They're certainly not operative in our world. There is not peace. There is not mercy. There is not meekness. There is not a hunger for righteousness. Um, we live in this world where you're blessed if you're ambitious, if you're assertive, if you're determined, where, where greed, literally greed and hunger for ever more stuff is what we value, right? Where we reward those who have the most, the biggest social network, the, the most influence, who say the most flamboyant and charismatic things. They get elected, they get put in power. Uh, we even reward intimidation and fear-mongering. We do that as people. So my question, I guess, for us as we begin this series is how do we as people who are seeking to follow Jesus, though I know none of us are doing it perfectly yet, how do we live in a, a world like that and have influence and impact in a world like that where there's this huge disconnect between what Jesus said, what he called us toward, and then the world we live in and just the reality of our lives? So back to my kite. For the Beatitudes to be more than just these catchphrases, right? They're catchphrases or like a magnificent ethic for life. You know, put them on a poster, you know, tweet it. It's going to be great. But really a powerful framework for us, for reshaping us, a soaring kite. For it to be those, uh, each of the same components other than gravity and what was the other one? It's open space. We'll get to those someday. But each of those other three, a person, a force, or wind, and uh, a string needs to be present in our lives. We have to have each of those three things going for us, in us, okay? So I want to look at those three, okay, with you. It's sort of an extended metaphor for the Beatitudes, and then we'll, throughout the weeks ahead, hopefully apply those as we go. So we're going to look at sort of the force behind us, behind them, the wind behind our lives, you might say, uh, the string that suspends us, okay, and then finally, the person that we're called to have in our lives, okay? Uh, we'll look at each of those, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's table together, okay? So begin with the wind. Uh, and if you, have a, if you have a note section in your bulletin, you can draw a kite, and maybe it'll stick. I don't know. But the wind is literally the force, though I might be wrong, that causes the kite to fly. <laughs> I don't know. So uh, let's go, let's switch it up. It's the context for the kite. You have to have the context of wind for that kite to fly, right? You do. So apply that to the Beatitudes. What, what is the force behind them? What is the wind, their context, so to speak? And if you read Matthew chapters 1 to 4, okay, just read it through sometime, what you're going to see is Jesus, his, his ministry is beginning to pick up steam. He is baptized. He's tempted. He is, he's gathering his first disciples. He's ministering to large crowds, Matthew 4 tells us. And in the midst of all that activity... Matthew reports to us that Jesus says this very peculiar and uh, kind of profound thing. Matthew 4, 17, his first sermon. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what he says, and then he says it again and again. It's important because as you read through Matthew's gospel, read through every gospel, Jesus is obsessed with the kingdom of God. He cannot stop talking about it. 64 times in the gospel of Matthew, he basically says the same thing talks about the kingdom, tells about the kingdom in stories, in explicit dialogue. Nearly 160 times in all of the New Testament, the kingdom of God is discussed. It, the Bible is obsessed with the kingdom of God. You might even say the Bible is about the kingdom of God. 
that's the force behind the Beatitudes, okay? That's basically point number one. But it, there's a problem with that. What is the kingdom of God, right? So a couple of years ago, Elizabeth, my wife, was teaching one of our second and third grade classes here. And she was reading this story from the, it's from the uh, Jesus Storybook Bible, this story where Jesus says, let the little children come to me, right? Here's how that Bible puts it. No matter how big you grow, never grow up so much that you lose your child's heart. Full of trust in God, be like these children that are the most important in my kingdom. It's beautiful, right? It's great. And so one of the kids in her class immediately interjected, you mean like castles and princesses and knights and ponies, right? Yeah, all of us are nodding. And that's not exactly what Jesus is talking about. That's the second and third graders' view of the kingdom. Maybe it's yours. <laughs> I, I don't know. And it's refreshing at a level. But we have, we have a profound uncertainty when it comes to the kingdom of God and discussion of that. We don't live in kingdoms, really, anymore. We don't have kings and queens and princesses and ponies and knights. We don't. We live in this postmodern 21st century world, right? Uh, so I, we need to be able to answer that question as we go, move forward. If we're going to talk about the kingdom, what is the kingdom? What's Jesus talking about? And I personally think there's no passage more illuminating about what Jesus is saying than in Matthew chapter 19. So you don't need to flip forward to that yet, but it's really important read it sometime. It's in the midst of this lengthy discourse on the kingdom of God. Jesus is telling stories. He's teaching about the kingdom. He's talking about the kingdom as if it's like uh, kings and lowly servants or mustard seeds and leaven, all these different metaphors, right? The kingdom is like this. The kingdom is like this. And then he says this fascinating thing. This is in the midst of that story about the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, hey, what do I have to do to get into your kingdom? Remember what Jesus says? Like, sell it all. And he goes away sad. He's kind of bummed because he's got a lot. And his disciples, have, they say to him, man, Jesus, we've, we've done that. And you said it's going to be really hard for us even, right? And here's what Jesus says. Let me pull my Bible out. Oh, sorry. Oh, <laughs> Do you need to cut anymore? It's pretty. Let's keep it there. Matthew 19, starting in verse 30. Uh, Uh, here's what Jesus says. Believe me uh, when I tell you that in the next world, the Son of Man shall sit down on his glorious throne. You who have followed me, so consider yourself one of his followers today. You're going to sit on 12 thrones, become judges of the 12 tribes of Israel. Every man, woman, and child who's left houses, brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, children, for my sake, will receive it all back many times over and will inherit eternal life. Many who are first now will be last then, and the last will be first. So the reason this is so important is uh, Jesus uses this word, this technical Greek word, to talk about the kingdom. In the next world, he says, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, the next world being his word for the kingdom there, okay? And that's this this word palingenesia. It's a technical Greek word that's really, it's only used twice in the New Testament, once here and once in Titus, Okay? So you're all reading Titus, I know. And uh, it's this word that's almost used exclusively in philosophical discourse, okay? And it literally means regenesis, in the regenesis of the world. And when I read that in English, I, ugh, that, feel, that feels like reincarnation to me. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. So let me unpack it. It's this belief 
that every so often the universe is going to be cleansed in this fire, like this, um, this amazing fire. Uh, and so the Greeks believed that the world and society was, the universe really, was just spiraling downward, always spiraling downward. I think scientists call this entropy, right? And so every so often the world, because it just gets so bad in that downward spiral, it just deteriorates so much. The Greeks believed that it had to be reborn for history to continue. Uh, so there's this inferno that, that just extinguishes everything. And when the fire's done, it's sort of like the phoenix in Harry Potter, right? The fire's done, everything starts over, new life. Everything's remade, everything's healed, everything's perfect. And so they didn't understand history as linear like we do. It was cyclical, so this happened again and again and again and again, which is why we could be sitting here today. And it's getting bad, because one day it's going to be remade, and we're going to start over and be reborn and whatever. So here's Jesus. This is wild. He picks up this word and uses it as his own and says his kingdom is going to be like that. There's going to be this climactic event in which everything you see now is going to be remade. Everything. Those chairs you're sitting on. (laughs) This bread, your body, the injustice in the world. Everything is going to be quenched in this fire and healed. But here's the key. (laughs) If you read the passage... He says it's going to be once for all, not again and again and again and again. Once for all. Because uh, the Greek worldview, this palingenesia, this new world, it it, it could never get perfect. So you had to start over and over. And Jesus says, no, (laughs) one time, one big fire. Now, my question for that is what fire could possibly have the power, you look at the world around us, to do that? That just seems like pie in the sky. And, you know, Jesus said, the Son of Man, Matthew 19, sitting on his glorious throne. That's it. You can imagine Jesus coming to sit on a throne. Boom. It's done. In, in other words, under this fiery joy, Jesus is full of joy. Under the absolute loving rule of Jesus, under his just gracious presence, the one true king, everything is made perfect because of his presence in that world. Okay? Everything's going to begin to dance. Now, think of the implications of this for a moment. Because I know it's still like, I don't think I get that. I don't know if I believe that, right? I get this idea that Jesus lives within me, but man, that seems like a huge mental leap. Uh, One of my favorite stories of all time is The Lord of the Rings. I don't know how many of you are fans. You might not be surprised. Like, that's a prerequisite for getting hired at Bethany. You have to love coffee, mountains, and like Gandalf. You know, that's... Literally, Richard asked that question. So, anyway, one of the reasons I love the stories is because it's with the hobbits. Just think the hobbits are awesome. Often call Andrew my hobbit friend. Yeah. No, I never have. <laughs> anyway, so, and there's this one hobbit, Sam, Sam Ganji, who I, I, we can argue about this, but I really think he's the hero of the story. I don't know about you, but some of you like Gandalf or Frodo or whatever. And here's why. Sam, he, you know, he helps Frodo through his whole journey, and then they get to the end. I hope I don't spoil this for any of you who haven't read it or seen the books, but, or read the, seen the movies, but it's your fault. So <laughs> there's this point in the story where Sam and Frodo, they're all sitting there, and then Sam sees Gandalf, and he comes back. You remember what Sam says to Gandalf? He says, I thought you were dead, Gandalf. In fact, I thought I was dead. I thought everybody was dead. And then he says this power, profound thing. Is everything sad going to come untrue, Gandalf? which may not have struck you at the time when you read it as something that was significant. 
But let me just tell you why that means so much to me. Take that phrase, written by Tolkien, not talk, not Jesus didn't say that, but take that to Jesus. And I mean, just, I invite you to do it sometimes. Say to Jesus, I thought you were dead. I, you look pretty dead. I, th- I thought I was dead. Like my life is not so good sometimes. Is everything sad going to come untrue, Jesus? Because he said it will. That's his answer always. Everything sad is going to come untrue. And see, see, Jesus is not saying, the Bible is not saying this about heaven, about the kingdom of God. Oh, you suffered so much. There's been so much evil in this world, uh, so much corruption, so much bad. So I'm going to give you something that's going to console you now, you know, or later even. You know, a little something that's going to medicate you so you won't think about it. I'm going to give you like clouds and little cherubs and harps so you can sit there and, and just forget about it all. He doesn't say that. I don't even know where those images of heaven came from. What Jesus says is his vision of the kingdom of God and what the essence of what he's declaring here in Matthew's gospel is that every problem that you face personally, every evil that our world faces collectively is not just going to be covered over, but utterly undone, completely undone. Whatever you faced, Jesus promises to undo it completely. Everything sad, untrue, as if it didn't happen. Uh, that's, what mean, that's what Jesus means when he declares in, in Revelation that the former things have passed away and that I'm making all things new. That's what he means. It's this declaration rooted in this idea that that the new, in the new glorious reality of Christ's rule and his reign, somehow, and I don't know exactly how, uh, because of this fiery joy of his presence, everything, everyone will be healed. All of us, healed. Uh, everything renewed. Environmental, you look at the environment, renewed. Completely renewed. As if, you, man, you can't even imagine. The mountains out there just pale in comparison to what he'll do. Everything reconciled, racism, political corruption, all that completely renewed as, as it was meant to be uh, because heaven has come to earth in the person of Jesus. That's the kingdom, and that's what's promised here by Jesus. That's what it means to enter into the kingdom. That's the force behind the kingdom. And so what this means for us is that for mercy and meekness, hunger for righteousness, peacemaking, all those things that the Beatitudes articulates, for those to just be more than just spiritual platitudes for us, because they can be that way a little bit, uh, but to be realities within which we live, we, our lives have to be lifted, back to the kite, by a vision bigger than your own personal kingdom. Whatever that kingdom is, whatever your version of good living and happiness is, whether that's a certain political party in power or access to certain freedoms and rights or the ability to earn a certain income level, and send your kids to a private college, and retire early, whatever it is for you. It, that is not the vision Jesus is inviting us to hold out in front of ourselves as the vision of life. Those all pale in comparison to what he's offering. And Scripture invites you to, to hold that bigger vision in front of yourselves, like this kite might. Okay? That's the wind okay, behind the force, behind the Beatitudes. Let's move to the string. So what... What's with this string, okay? This big spool of string. Why does it work? Maybe gravity. So uh, 
Earl Palmer, who's a former pastor at University Pres in the U District, friend and mentor of mine, I know many here, um, he tells this parable of a kite. And maybe you've heard this. He says, suppose that a kite could think. Suppose this kite achieved consciousness and had, to think, had the ability to think and wonder. Wouldn't that be amazing? Suppose it flies in the sky and feels the surge of the wind and the exhilaration of flying. Can you imagine? But also then, just the incessant tug of that string, <laughs> just holding it down. Suppose the kite could say to itself, man, if I could just free myself from that string, if I could cut it, then I could fly. Well, you know what would happen, don't you? That if you cut the string, what happens to the kite? Gravity kicks in. That thing is just down to the ground. And here's, here's a quote from Earl Palmer. It's precisely the taut line between the kite and the one who's holding the kite, the string, that enables that kite to fly. The tension between those two is good, uh, which means that it allows the kite to accomplish what it was designed to do. This kite was designed to fly, not sit in a garage. That Pegasus, beautiful, meant to be in the sky. And the only way, and the, the way this relates to this conversation with the Beatitudes is this. There's this necessary tension within them, within the kingdom of God, uh, that's like that kite string, that we only ever understand the kingdom of God and to change the, its ability to change our lives, these Beatitudes, the, their ability to sort of to bring us to new heights if we live within the tension of the kingdom of God. And there's a bunch of tensions. I want to look at two of them with you this morning. Okay, real quick. So the first tension is the kingdom of God is forward back. You might say backwards, but it's forward back. So do you notice, if you read the Beatitudes, these promises, as Sean read them, that uh, all of them are present promises, but two of them are future. Sorry, excuse me, I think I screwed that up. All of them are future promises, two of them are present. I'll read them. So verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Okay, future. Blessed are those who meek, they shall inherit the earth. Again, future. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied. Future promise. And so on and so forth. But these promises of the first and last Beatitudes, of verse 3, verse 10, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, theirs is the kingdom of God. Those are present promises. They're here for us now. And it's interesting, but what does it mean? So what? Present and future. I don't care. Uh, I think, here's what it means. I think that the, the kingdom of God is sort of a paradox that we're invited to live within. Uh, that it's present now, full of all kinds of blessings today, and yet there are many that we have to wait for to see fully and experience fully. As we sometimes say, it's already and it's not yet. And here's what that means. Uh, Jesus has brought the kingdom to earth in his, his kingly power and presence in your life. Jesus is living in your life. The kingdom of God is at work in and through you. But the full experience of that life, some of us are sick today. Some of us are dealing with addictions today. Some of us are dealing with broken relationships today or bankruptcy or whatever it is. And you're not any further from God's kingdom if those are true for you. The full experience of God's kingdom, are, it's being, we're being slowly, steadily, daily drawn into that. Uh, and this, this is one of the most important things you can learn about being a Christian, I think. And certainly about the, the Sermon on the Mount. It can't be understood unless you understand this. So take verse 7, for example. We're going to study this in a few weeks. 
Blessed are the merciful, they shall obtain mercy. So it sounds like this future thing, there's no mercy today. Uh, does this mean, I mean, just unpack it, does, that, does this mean that God is withholding his mercy for us till this future day of reckoning, and that once to, he's, he's testing, this is just a big test, to see how merciful we'll be with others. And then he'll give us mercy then. You know, like the gates, the pearly gates thing. And that's not what that means at all. There is no test. This is not some big test, okay? Uh, if you know the good news of the kingdom, that it's already come, and yet that it's also at work, like a dragnet just pulling us into God's future reign and rule, if you know that the power of the kingdom is present as well as future, then you're going to know that you're becoming merciful today, right now. Many of you have extended mercy, I mean, to me and to each other. That's a work of God's presence in your life, yet there's an assurance of greater mercy even still. There's a, there's a mercy beyond mercy for you, for us. That God is not waiting like some judge at the end of the age just to see whether or not we've been able to earn it. He's not, no. Uh, there's not some cause. Instead, God is casting a sort of net of mercy, dragging us that might cling on to him and be desperate enough to find him. Uh, toward the kingdom of God, drawing us into relationship with Christ. The Beatitudes are sort of this announcement, you might say, of how fortunate people are who possess this understanding of that power to, of the future kingdom to change lives, just grab on. They're an invitation to grab on to God and say, God, draw me further up and further into the kingdom. I want to be a part of that. I grab on. Uh, that, so that's the first tension. The, the kingdom of God is... is is forward back, but there's a second one. It's also upside down. And maybe you've heard this before. Uh, one of the interesting things about the Sermon on the Mount and these Beatitudes is that uh, th- all the price tags have been switched. If you go to a store like Walmart, they switch the price tags. Uh, look who's being blessed here. Not the rich, the poor. Not the powerful, the dispossessed. Not the strong, the influential, the significant, but the weak, the foolish, the lowly. That's whom these blessings in the Beatitudes are for. Uh, some have described this as Jesus' great reversal. Uh, this, with the summary statement of which I think Jesus offers there in Matthew 19, many who have been first, and he does this again and again, it's important, many who have been first will be last, and the last will be first. The great reversal. Which I've always found both challenging and uh, encouraging. Encouraging because I've been last in line, literally, but also... I've experienced loneliness profoundly. Um, I've been utterly lost in addiction and, and family dysfunction. And I know many of you have too. You've been, uh, you've been, there have been setbacks and losses and addictions and bankruptcy. And the good news is those are not the end of the story for you. They aren't the end of my story. That your failures do not define you. Your losses do not define you. If you're defining yourself by those things today, Jesus says, stop. Those do not define who you are. They're not on your permanent record. They aren't. They're wiped. Uh, I'm consoled on behalf of others as well. Like, I know many people who have suffered way more than I have. Many of you. You've lost children. Uh, You've experienced loss after loss. Lost health, lost jobs, lost homes, lost family members. And though my spirit just recoils at that suffering as a pastor, um, I cry to God, why God? Why do these people who are so good have to lose so much? 
What I hear in Jesus' words here is hope for you. Hope for us. Hope for the poor. Hope for the broken. He has hope for us. But I'm also challenged. And here, you should be too. We are, we are among the first. We are definitely among the first. I mean, what does this say of us, middle-class Americans, generally middle-class Americans, in the, when this great reversal is coming toward us like a steam train? Like, my health is good. I enjoy the bounty of three meals a day. I even get snacks, you know. Uh, I'm in the, we live in the most richest, the richest country in the world, by far, despite its dysfunction. Uh, I bought a house this year. Or I, the bank bought a house. I rented from them. I have four bicycles that are my own. Four. I have one butt, so I don't need four, in case you didn't know. I get to use Cardigo. I used a Cardigo this morning. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? I didn't have to walk. I have friends in Africa who walk six miles to get to church. You thought two blocks was hard. Uh, we get to sit in this temperature-controlled room together and talk about God. Drink hot coffee in the winter, cold coffee in the summer. I mean, we are so rich, profoundly rich, my friends. And so the question at this point is, whoa, what do I do? The last will be first, and the first will be last in the kingdom of God. Am I going to lose out on all those promises? Or does this mean that I have to suffer, like, sell it, like rich young rulers, sell it all, you know, Suffer for Jesus, right? Take up the cross. I, I don't think that's it. Uh, those are shortcuts, I think, to where Jesus really wants you to go. Here's the answer. I think it comes in two forms. When the gospel says that the way up is down, the way to life is first death, the, high, the, the way to go high is to be brought low, to give is to receive, all these things. What the gospel is inviting us to do is just to go down. You can go down. Gravity does work. Uh, to descend into greatness is what the gospel is inviting you to do, which simply means to admit that you are a sinner. Like, say it. I'm a sinner. Come on. You can do it. I'm a sinner. It's hard. It doesn't come off the tongue so easy. I'm a sinner. I'm a moral failure. Underneath all of your accomplishment and your accomplished people, degrees, companies, beautiful families, uh, you're bankrupt. You're hosed. I mean, like, I don't know how to put it differently. You are incapable of all the things. I'm incapable of all the things I, quite frankly, am incapable of doing. I pretend a lot to you. Uh, the gospel invites you to go deep, that deep. Like, take a hard look at the idols of your heart. What do you idolize today? Success? You know, promotion? Getting liked and followed? A degree? Whatever it is. Look at your brokenness, look at your sorrow, look at your poverty, and when you get there, here's the beautiful thing, don't, when you get down there, don't be sorry for yourself. Don't, it's not about masochism. Rejoice, because here's the beauty of the gospel. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, brothers and sisters, think of who and what you were when you were called. Not, not many of you were wise, <laughs> not, were, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth. God chose the foolish things of the world, to shame the wise. God chose the weak things in the world. Are you weak today? Do you feel weak? He chose you in your weakness to shame the things that are strong. God chose the lowly to shame the things that are full of themselves. 
when you begin to understand that you're not saved by your performance, you're not saved by how much recognition you're going to get, that you're not significant because of the likes and followers you have on Instagram or Facebook, or your net worth isn't valued in dollars or market share, none of that, but solely and entirely on the grace of God. That's your value. That awareness, listen, breaks the power of all those things in your life. I know they hold power over you. They hold power over me. And the grace of God going down deep into it and seeing how broken you actually are and how good and great God actually is, you'll, he will break the power of those things. You will not be driven by them. You will not need the recognition. You won't need the power. You won't need the money. You won't need the position. You won't need any of it because God's grace is enough. It is. So have, my question is, have you gone down? Have you ever gone down deep? Like, put on the snorkel, like, get rid of the snorkel. I don't know. Just go down. Dive. Break, let God break the power of your brokenness over you. When you do, that's where you'll begin to discover the beauty of God's kingdom. So that's number one. Number two, and the final point today, okay, is this person thing. So there's a, a second thing here within this idea of... of um, these paradoxes that is really important, and this being upside down. So there's a force, there's a tension, and there's this person. So you need all three of these things, right? And all I want to say here is that the Beatitudes, at the end of the day, are not about us. They're not a summons to change your life. They're not like a New Year's resolution. Start reading it, you know, start doing it. Start working, right? Uh, because none of us who've ever tried have been able to live these out. None of us. Like, we're not merciful. We're not righteous. We're not peaceful. We cannot. We, that's, and that's the point of the Beatitudes. They're impossible to live out. Impossible. Try it this year. You will fail at some point. And that's good news. There's this guy named Ian Duguid, who's this Old Testament scholar at a seminary in Pennsylvania, where I was a pastor. <clears throat> And he's a, good pre- he's a good preacher, too. So I heard this sermon by him once. He wrote this book called Hero of Heroes about the Beatitudes. And here's what he says. He argues that the Beatitudes are not about us, like I've just said. And he, he says that he starts by exploring this word blessed that Jesus uses again and again throughout them. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He says that throughout the Bible, this word blessed actually means to be favored or envied. Okay. So people who are blessed uh, are people like David and Joshua and Abraham and others, Moses, who have God's favor, and so then they're envied by others. We want to be like those guys. You know, I wanna, they're the heroes. You know, Hebrews 11 and 12, I want to be like those guys, right? They're blessed until you get to the Beatitudes. And then what blessed means and what to be favored and envied means, what to be heroic means is not that you've done great things, but that you've failed. Not that you've been successful and powerful, but you've, you're just the lowest of the low. This is a very strange profile of a hero, right? One who's humble and poor. One who mourns and suffers well. One who's hated and slandered and detested. One who's able to make peace. And do you see the point here? They're not about you. They're not. Frankly, they're not, they're not about any of us. There, there's, there's, there's no ordinary hero here that's being articulated. Certainly not a hero any one of us would want to try and become because everybody would look down on you. <laughs> and 
Here's how Duguid puts it. Jesus doesn't simply describe here what a Christian hero ought to look like. His description has power because he himself is that hero, was that hero. That's it. The Beatitudes are not about us. They're about Jesus. They describe Jesus. Uh, the point is that, and the point of the Bible is that Jesus was the true hero of the story. And why can you be as rich as kings? Why can you enter the kingdom of God? Because Jesus became poor. He became spiritually and utterly, abjectly poor. He, he was stripped of everything in his life. And then his death, my God, my God, why have even you forsaken me? Uh, why are you and I as Christians able to inherit the earth? Because Jesus became meek. Because he, became, he was an innocent lamb who was slain. Why can we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Because Jesus said on the cross, I thirst. He fills us with his, with his thirst for God. It's his thirst. We're not being called by Jesus to, to live these things out in perfection. Don't try that this year. Just don't do it. We're being invited to catch a vision of Jesus and simply just do this. Invite Jesus to so fill your life that he would express himself through you as these things. That you would become merciful because he is mercy. You become peaceful and a peacemaker because that's Jesus. You become humble, poor in spirit, able to take insults because Jesus did it. He does it. He's able to. And that's enough to be a blessing toward those around you in the world. That's the point of these Beatitudes. And that's why we wanted to come to the table today. I know it's like the second Sunday of January and we don't usually do this, but the reason we come to this communion table every time we come is to receive a greater measure of Jesus into our lives. It's, it's, these are symbolic elements, but we do so in faith. We say, Jesus, with this bread and this juice, would you somehow come into my life in greater measure, in greater degree? And that's what I want to invite you toward today. If this is the first Sunday you've ever done this, awesome. That's a great first step. If you've been doing this your whole life, again, I say this a lot, would you do it as an act of faith, not obedience and routine? Say, Jesus, I want you in my life. Would you fill me? Okay. Let me just take a moment to pray, and we're going to do something that we don't normally do throughout the, the series together. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to say the Lord's Prayer together because Jesus invites us to pray for his kingdom to come in that prayer. I thought that would be fitting, and I'd like us to get into the habit of asking Jesus through that prayer to enter into the world ever more fully. Let's pray over this meal, and then we'll all invite us to pray the Lord's Prayer, okay? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for uh, this opportunity we have to come to your table uh, and to receive you. God, many of us have not felt worthy of that journey, though it's just a few steps. We've felt like we've fallen way short uh, in life. We've faced criticism. Um, we are discouraged. We're physically hurting. Our relationships are, are totally out of order. So many areas, God, where maybe all of us are coming in a broken condition. And so <laughs> we thank you for that, God. We thank you that in that awareness of our brokenness, we can come to you and receive your broken body for us, to heal us. Receive your shed blood to cover us. 
to wipe away any knowledge of our failures. So God, would you do that work? Would you fill us? Would you allow us to see you more fully and clearly today? We pray these things in Christ's name, who taught us to pray in faith, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory.